It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. That song has been an indication that it is time for a party on the weekend. And it doesn't matter where you are. It doesn't matter what age you are. It doesn't matter if you're at work, if you're home, listening in bed, or if you're at an actual party. Once you hear that, you know it's time for a party with the world's greatest DJ, a gentleman that I am a huge fan of and have been my entire life, and now I am proud to call a colleague, the one and only Bruce Morrow, better known for the better part of, I guess, the last six or seven decades as Cousin Brucey. Thrilled to be able to welcome him to the other side of midnight. Cousin Brucey, how are you? Hello, Cousin Frank. First of all, if I was wise, and I am pretty wise after all these years, how many decades you told me? You just got me tired. I think I should say good night. Nice seeing you. Nice being with you. How can you? What do you do with following that up? I mean, there's no way, Frank. You did a little too much. <laughs> you know, um, I am amazed at uh, one. I talk to so many people who still listen to your show every Saturday night. Now, some of them grew up with you. Some of them are new fans of yours, and uh, that's one of the amazing things about your careers. You seem to be gaining new fans all the time and keeping a lot of the existing ones. But um, one of the things that I am struck by is that the format you do, the DJ format where you're talking up songs, telling an interesting story about the songs, it's it's vanishing on FM radio and certainly on AM radio, but even on your old home on satellite radio, you don't really hear DJs on the radio as much these days, which I think is a real shame. As far as you're concerned, why do you think it's still so important to have DJs? Well... I think it's important. There's something called connection, radio connection. But we got to add something very important, urgent. Mark that urgent, Cousin Frank. I decide, decided and discovered several years ago that being a DJ is not enough. Now, a DJ was, I guess somebody was like a, a bridge. He was uh, the tunnel, uh, the connection device between, uh, between the audience and uh, time and weather and music. But today, the audience is so sophisticated. You know that better than I do. You, you do this all the time, too. And uh, uh, the audience has changed. So Cousin Brucey had to change, too, very quickly. And I did many, many years ago when I was doing satellite radio and trying to really make a connection. I realized that the show had to be a variety show, a mixture of what you do and what I do and what the people want. And uh, that's what I came up with. So today, I, I do a different kind of show. It's really more variety. It's not just music and telling stories and, uh, you know, time and weather and talking about uh, the traffic light in town. 
It's a, a mixture of everything. It's social events, news happenings. And you know what? What happens in the lives of people every single day? That's what I do. I mix that up and it works beautifully for me. And I love that you do that. And you do an interview better than anybody. You tell a story better than anybody. You play great music. And I have to think that that blending of music and talk, you probably had all these programmers over the years uh, saying, hey, no, 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 that's not going to fly on a music station. And certainly when you came back to WABC a few years ago, some of the uh, naysayers may even have even said that's not going to fly on a talk station. Tell me about that decision to kind of blend talk and music into what you've termed as a, a variety show. How did that come to you? Well, when I was on the air, I used to get off, well, always, always had a lot of telephone calls from people. And I realized over the years that they weren't just asking for, hey, Brucey, uh, play some Beatles records for me. Will you play a record for me and my bird, you know, for me and my girl? Uh, they, they were talking about, hey, Bruce, I just want to tell you something. My dad just mentioned that he was with you at a high school many years ago. And, and, and they start talking about uh, personal things. So I realized that this has to be more of the blend. It's not just me playing 50s, 60s, and as I say, a touch of the 70s, playing jingles, my echo, right? Which we can talk about that later. We're going to talk about yeah. the echo and about the jingles. It's kind of a fun story. But I realized that I had to have more of a mix. It, otherwise, it would not just be interesting. It would be a jukebox. Then they might as well have, uh, you know, regular radio stations that just almost segue music and, uh, you know, give call letters. Uh, that's not what the people that I find want today. They want to be involved with me, with the audience, with the actual, their fellow audience, and with the music. So that, that's what the combination started. And uh, it was pretty obvious. And it works. It works beautifully. You were dominant ratings-wise and by every other metric that success in radio is measured on the AM band at multiple different stations, including WABC in New York. Then you were dominant in FM uh, by every metric that's imaginable. And then you were dominant on the relatively new medium at the time of satellite radio, where you did a very popular show on the uh, on the. 60s channel for, I guess, about 15 years. I I'm wondering what that transition was like for you, going from AM and FM terrestrial radio to the world of satellite radio. Was it all the same to you, or did you have to, did you have to change up a bit? All right. This might surprise you, but it was all the same. Now, I'll mm -hmm. tell you why. Uh, I realized that when I go on the air, like I'm doing right now, talking to you, and I'm talking to all my cousins out there, you notice I said, I'm talking to. I didn't say at. I'm talking to, Frank. And that's what I discovered. When you get on the air, you, you, you are sharing a personal adventure with people, a personal experience with people. You said before, uh, I'm in bed with people. I'm in their most intimate moments. Mm -hmm. I take showers with people. <laughs> I'm in cars. And I realize that. And that's when I, when I talk to people. I, I just know right away that this is not just somebody talking on a microphone to a cold end called a radio. It's really comes right to the heart, right to the belly. And I've always aimed for that. And I hope that I've achieved the modicum of that. I'm still trying. I'm still learning every single day. I have another, 
I think, according to John Castamatidis, uh, he wants to give me another 40 years. <laughs> and, I, and I think that might be difficult, Frank, if you know what I mean. You're a good mathematician. I, look, I, I'll tell you, I think uh, all those actuarial tables uh, can uh, can go to pot, given the track record that you've had of, uh, of surviving and thriving in the radio business, where the a- average on-air personality in radio can measure the length of their career with, a, with an egg timer. You know, it's funny, <laughs> I, I read that it was wasn't always necessarily radio that you aspired to be, and this may surprise some people. But I had read that you, one of your earlier career aspirations was to be a gynecologist. Is that accurate? And what made you give up the dream of gynecology for well, radio? I, I don't want to. You, you, you know what? I got in trouble with that. Let's call it. I wanted to study medicine. Fair enough. All right. I I wanted to study medicine. I'm not, I'm not going to take any specialty yet. I haven't decided. I'm too young. <laughs> Fair right? I haven't said what. Yeah. My my first dream. You know, growing up in Brooklyn. Right. My neighbors Meyerowitz and they're, they're, your parents, your mother especially wants a doctor. You know, they don't want they don't want radio personality. They don't want a movie star. They want a doctor. That's all they can. So I was sort of brought up. To become a doctor, and uh, I used to play doctor, <laughs> you know, all the time, and we had a great time in the neighborhood. And uh, my parents were were very wonderfully understanding, and they they helped me along with what I wanted to do. I discovered radio, Frank. I don't know if I ever told you the story about 1945. You want to hear that story? Yes. I'm on the way home from a, I'm a kid, PS206 in Brooklyn, New York. And I'm on the way home. I stopped in the, the park to flirt with the girls and, you know, climb on the monkey bars and show everybody how good I was at it, which I was not. And then I went home to East 26th Street. I wanted my milk and my cookies. My mom would always have milk and cookies ready for me and my brother. So I went home. And that day, I noticed it's about 1945. And I noticed that my mother is on the porch, which is a two-story brick building's on East 26th Street between V and W. And I noticed my mother on the porch with Mrs. Flynn, Mrs. O'Brien, Mrs. Schwartz, and a couple other of our neighbors. And then I noticed as I got closer, they were all boiling. They were crying, crying. And then they'd stop, and something would blare out, and they'd start crying again. I got closer, and I got very nervous. A, number one, I wasn't going to get my milk and cookies, and then I'm worried about my mom. Well, I got closer. I, I climbed up the stairs. I went on the stoop. We call them stoops, by the way, as in stoop ball. And when I climbed up the stairs, I, I noticed that they were listening to this little, it looked like, well, it wasn't plastic in those days. We used to call it a baker light, I guess. And uh, it was a fader radio with a dial, and it was set somewhere in the middle. And uh, the announcer would say, ladies and gentlemen, we regret to inform you that the president of the United States, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, passed away. He died this afternoon. Well, they went crazy. They went, they were crying, and and I I looked at this little blind, this little box. I think it was sort of yellow and reddish, with a light in the middle, and I realized really without realizing realizing if you understand know what I mean that if this little box with that man inside it, who had an amplified voice, could could make these strong Brooklyn women cry like that, I had to find out more about it. So I did. And then in the ensuing months, I used to sit behind my parents' Crosley radio in the living room with a fork, a utensil. 
and make believe I was on the radio. Wow. That's how it started. So th- that's a true story. That's exactly how I found out about radio. I, I tell you, that doesn't surprise me, given your ability to paint pictures with words and move people with words and with sounds and to kind of play into that theater of the mind dynamic that you've been so well known for for uh, so many so many decades now. You know, I, I think a lot of people may have heard that you started in the radio business actually in Bermuda and you were called the hammer back then. But one of the one of the controversial aspects of your tenure there that people may not realize is that you were one of the first radio personalities in this entire hemisphere to actually have black and white audiences sitting together. Talk to me about that. That was pretty progressive at the time. It was, but I didn't know. Look, I'm a young kid, young man. I came from New York City. And fortunately, growing up in my neighborhood where it didn't matter you know, where you where you came from, what the color of your skin was, but how far you could hit a stickball, a spalding, where you were a three-sewer man or a two-sewer <laughs> man. That's all that counted. That's all that counted. And uh, so I went to Bermuda. I graduated uh, New York University, sent out my demo tapes, Frank, and I sent out seven. Uh, seven of them came back and told me to go in my father's business. Then one day I got a call from Bermuda, down in Bermuda, Paradise for two, you know, that song. And uh, it was like a, a wonderful adventure and romance. It was a chance to get out of the house. I've never been traveling before. And Bermuda sounded so exotic, albeit it was like only 90 miles off the coast of North North Carolina. <laughs> I spent a year there. And that's when they really learned the trade. Because, you know, you, you go to college, and I founded the NYU radio station. And I had a great education at NYU in New York City. But I got my real education while I was on the air in Bermuda for that year, little year plus. I learned really not only about radio, but unfortunately about people, about life, which I, would, I was not prepared for. A college education did not prepare me for people that didn't like people because of skin color or because of a, a religion. So one day uh, a, a church burned down somewhere in the outside of Hamilton, I forgot what, what uh, parish it was, and uh, they needed help to rebuild this church. It was a black church, and uh, the parishioners came to me. They listened on the air, and they knew that you know, I had mixed audiences. I had people dancing, which got a lot of uh, people concerned on the island at that time. Things have changed, by the way, I must say. Sure. I must preface Bermuda is a very changed place today. It's uh, part of the world. Uh, people learned their lessons and are learning still like we are. So I I decided I was going to help them rebuild the church. Well, I did that and uh, held a huge dance party. I hired a uh, uh, a, a big hall uh, in Hamilton. That's the capital city in Bermuda. And I held a big dance, and people came and contributed money, and I had all kinds of things, dance contests, and uh, people singing Calypso, and rock and roll. I brought rock and roll to that island. Uh, a lot of people still are angry about that, about me, about bringing that rock and roll to the island, a peaceful island at one time. And um, did very well. We uh, earned enough money to almost rebuild that church. But then I was uh, gently asked to leave, and uh, which I did. And, and there's a whole bunch of stories that happened in between this 
that I related in my book, when I think my, my biography. And uh, it was, as I said, a lesson in life, how we walk on eggshells. Uh, life is so delicate. Life is so sensitive. And it's so sad we can't get together. Well, we better get together pretty soon because, boy, we are in trouble. You know, right? the, uh, and I don't want—I don't want to even go. You and I need five hours to talk about that. <laughs> That's Ooh. for sure. That's for sure. That book, by the way, is terrific. I—I uh, uh, I purchased a copy. You were kind enough to sign it for me. If people want to pick it up, it's still available on Amazon. It's called Cousin Brucey: My Life in Rock and Roll Radio. You've written a few books, uh, but uh, that one—if you're interested in great radio stories and great stories about your life—that uh, is the one that uh, that people should check out. Hey, um, everybody. I think is aware of your remarkable tenure at uh, WABC in New York in the 60s, part of the British invasion, being so associated with the Beatles and Chase Stadium. Then you make the decision to go to WNBC and replace Wolfman Jack, uh, another just legendary radio talent. Talk to me about kind of the different vibe, uh, how the air was different, how the culture was different at WNBC versus WABC at that time. Oh, once again, Again, uh, WABC, not only today, is probably, and I must say, uh, this we'll get to later, but probably among my happiest times on the air, which I'm going through right now, right? But also, I reflect back to the time, my original tenure on WABC radio, same thing. For some reason, we have a magic, magic cadre of executives who make it extremely comfortable, and you want to come to work. You want to come and do your shows. Now, I never referred to it as work. I referred to it as, hey, I'm going in today. Have a great time. So in the 60s, it was wonderful. And then some things happened. Uh, numbers changed. Ratings changed. Uh, I was called into the office one day, and I'm just trying to go back. They tried to change my uh, – the general manager tried to change my uh, contract – my contract was coming up in about six months, and they they uh, used numbers against me and uh, everybody else. So I said to him, "I tell you what, I'm pretty I'm a pretty good businessman." I said, "Tell you what, cancel this contract now, and I'll talk to you about a new one." They bit. I threw the bait, and they bit. They uh, let me out of my contract. That evening, I was on the phone to WNBC. Oh, I knew wanted me because the Wolfman Jack thing was not working well against me. Uh, I don't know how many weeks it was, maybe 10 weeks or so. Uh, they they had a whole campaign. Uh, Cousin Brucey's days are numbered. They sent out tombstones to every advertising agency and promotional uh, entry place all over this country. And uh, Cousin Brucey's days are numbered. Wolfman Jack is on the prowl. And it was a, a tombstone. And people kept it on their desks. And they sent over an action one to WABC, something like six foot tall, that they left on the top of the stairs in the middle of the night. And there's a photograph, a pretty pretty famous photograph, of a couple security guards looking at this thing and scratching their heads, wondering what to do with it. They couldn't move it. It was it was a, one of those things. So they had a big promotional thing. Well, Wolfman lasted about eight to ten weeks against me. It didn't work. It didn't work. He never particularly like me. Matter of fact, in his book, in his book, he did a job of me pretty well. Really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah, well, it's unfortunate because I really didn't know him. I didn't care about him. He wasn't 
a New York commodity. Sure. Right? And it's, I said it didn't last long. So uh, with the WABC thing ended happily for me because it, it was they made a deal. If my ratings went up, I, I shouldn't matter them on my he shouldn't even tell you these things, but I think it's all right now. Uh, if Statute the of limitations went up, is up. Yeah, yeah. If my ratings went up, the remuneration would go up, and vice versa, of course. Well, I'm not gonna, I'm gonna handle that. All these years on the air, that's that's an insult. So I was on the phone quickly with uh, WNBC, and uh, they there wasn't even a hesitation. Within three days, I was back on the air, back on the air. And it was. I remember the ad was. Uh, it's a picture of me uh, underneath WABC, and the A goes up in the air like out, and NBC comes in. So I spent time on WNBC, and uh, that was kind of fun. That was a fun time too. That was good. Not as fun as I'm having now. Well, I mean, I think the show that you're doing now is uh, some of the best work you've done in your entire career. But what, one thing I do have to ask you about your tenure at WNBC, though, is. You playing an incredible role in sort of rediscovering, bringing back to the dead, really, what I consider to be one of the greatest novelty songs of all time, that's Shaving Cream by Benny Bell. Now, I play that on the radio, but nobody would be playing that on the radio but for you re-breaking that record in the 1970s. And maybe we'll play it, uh, maybe we'll play it next, but where did you, where did you first hear that song and what prompted you to put that back into circulation because I did, there was no way I was going to be allowed to play that. I mean, it was it was nerdy. It was dirty. It was terrible. It was nerdy, dirty. And I I, I went to uh, the program manager and the uh, general manager and I said, "Look, this is uh, kind of a silly nonsense song. What do you say we try it once and see what happens?" They had trust in me and faith in me, and they told me, "Try it once, see what happens." Well, I played it, and everybody loved it. They kept on asking for it. I mean, it's a silly song. Uh, last night I was went to the bathroom. Well, you know, it's all it rhymes with a naughty word, a yeah. four-letter word. Uh, every, I mean, it's very a very obvious, silly thing. It's by a family named Benny Bell, and it's real borscht belt, like a a fun borscht belt song. So I, I knew this would would go for it would be going for in a a New York, New Jersey uh, audience, perfect for it, and it worked. It worked great, and they gave me permission to do it. And I had the nerve to do it because, very honestly, but I was taking a chance. If it would have backfired on me, you and I would not be talking today. <laughs> you know, it's funny that you mentioned the the Borscht Belt, where we're being heard right now in the Catskills. We're on WVOS, the uh, voice of Sullivan County. Happy to be on there. I know you had a lot of cousins out there uh, who are big fans of yours. Y you are in and played a pretty, pretty pivotal role in one of the great Catskill pieces of popular culture of all time, the film Dirty Dancing with Patrick Swayze and Jennifer Grey. What people may be surprised by, though, is while it looks a lot like the Catskills that people may remember from your, their youth. You actually filmed that in North Carolina, right? Yes, yeah. In Lake Lure, matter of fact. And by the way, well, can we stop here for a moment? The uh, Borspelt Museum is opening. They're, they're having a, 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 a special exhibition coming up very soon. And the, uh, they're having a, a wonderful museum that is being opened. So I think they bought the old bank building in Ellenville, New York, and it's going to really bring to life and make 3D of what it was like to grow up 
in the wow. in that particular time. Yeah, it's called the uh, the Borscht Belt Museum, and it's something everybody should check out because this is part of an American culture that should not, under any circumstances, be allowed to disappear. And it's not anything to do with religion, right? It's Americana. It was a time when you know people had to find themselves and look. So, and this disappeared. It was all gone. All the uh, the bungalows and all the all those hotels were you know were either gone or dilapidated. But some b- bunch of people. I was very early in this. I I got involved in the early uh, uh, the, the the building of this particular thing, and uh, I'm very excited that it's coming to fruition. It's opening. So it's there. And by the way, speaking of dirty dancing, they're going to be showing that on the streets of Ellenville very shortly. Wow. Yeah. Is that fun? I mean, that was a, a wild story. And that's because my wife, Jody, that I got a hold of this. Uh, she was a very friend, uh, good friend of the writer, Ellen Bergstein, who uh, was a listener. And they, you know, one thing led to the other, and I became the magician. I, I I think you're terrific in that picture. You, you really capture the magic of uh, Borscht Belt shtick, I think, better than than anybody. If people are just tuning in, we're talking with Cousin Brucey. You can hear him every Saturday night, uh, either on WABC or all over the world at WABCradio.com. People tell me they tune in from California, from Canada, from Europe, listening on WABCradio.com. It's really a radio experience uh, like no other. Bruce, as far as AM radio goes, which you've been so associated with probably since 1960, do you think AM radio has a future? We keep hearing that uh, any day now AM radio is going to outlive its usefulness. I think we've been hearing that since 1959. Ooh, <laughs> I guess eventually they'll be they'll be right. Where, where do you how do you handicap AM radio's future? Well, I've been sort of fighting about this because when I heard that a couple of the automotive uh, people. We're going to take AM out of the car. I, I went nuts. I went, you know, AM radio is just like uh, like the, the old schoolhouse. And uh, it's like elementary school and high school. Uh, information, news, weather, friends. Where do you go right away around the corner to find out what to do and what is happening? It's AM radio. AM radio is right there. Even though it's become an international uh, event and an international device, as you said, it still maintains that local feel. So I think there'll always be room on the AM band for, for AM radio. And I know people people will go nuts if they don't have it. You know, all you have to do is take something away like this, like it's a candy bar, right? Something uh, that you've had all your life and you want it, and suddenly you realize a week later that it's gone. No, it, nobody will stand for that. AM radio, I know, has a future. Now, how it's going to how it's gonna turn around, what's going to happen? Well, look what happened with me. My show today, it's funny, I was listening with my wife, Jody, the other day to some of my 60s shows in WABC, and I looked at her and I sort of said, that was me? You know, things have changed so much. You change with your audience the audience is the, the prime conductor of what we do. And now uh, you must be aware of what that audience wants. And that's what I do. I study very hard. I talk to people. While they're talking to me on the air, I'm, I'm really asking them questions. I want to make sure that they're happy. 
and uh, they write when they're not happy. Let me tell you, oh, yeah. they let don't you? They let us know, don't they? Whoa! You don't have to tell me, especially with the advent of social media. My goodness! Uh, but it's funny. I was actually listening to some of your work from the '60s that I came across on the internet. Some of the the great classic air checks from uh, the early part of the '60s, and you talk about how much you've had to change and how much the audience has changed. One of the things that I was struck by is how much you've stayed the same. Your energy level and your voice, they sound like I could have been listening to it last Saturday. Give me a pro tip, if you can, Cousin Brucie. How do you maintain that level of voice preservation after decades of doing this? Knowing what you're doing and, most important, loving what you're doing. Frank, Cousin Frank, I know you love what you're doing. I know you. And I listen to you, right? And, you know, you go on the air and you are happy and you feel the energy of that audience. It's like a give and take. And the energy just comes up like a boiler. That's why I, I feel exactly the same. I uh, I hope I look pretty much the same. I'm, I'm very lucky. I'm very lucky I have a painting up in the attic somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> I hope. I Cousin hope. Dorian. There he is. Yeah. Uh, Cousin Dorian. So I just, I'm doing, and it just comes out with energy because it's sincere it's real. What you have on the air with what I do is me. There's no baloney. I walk into the studio, whether it be at WABC or my studio, and I can't wait to go on the air because I know the audience is there. You know, Frank, I got a guy who calls me the morning show in Tokyo. Mm-hmm. He's there. Can you imagine? I mean, that alone gets me so turned on. He's listening in Tokyo every day, every Saturday, and it's my the morning show in Tokyo. Now that's pretty darn wild. I, that's so, outstanding. That's exciting. It's exciting. It certainly is. Now, uh, whether people are listening in Japan uh, this weekend or elsewhere, I'm looking forward to uh, hearing this weekend's show. Not only are you going to be playing some great music, doing some great dedications, but you've got one of my favorites coming on this weekend, Peter Noon from Herman's Hermits. That's going to be exciting. Well, he's he's absolutely terrific. He's with Sirius XM. In fact, uh, I was one of the guys that I guess helped get him his job. I talked to the program director. I thought it was be a terrific idea, and he, he is. He's a wonderful personality. He's a charming guy. I also have him coming on uh, to a show this coming Thursday at PNC Center in uh, Homedale, New Jersey. He's headlining a show for me. So Peter is, uh, he and I have been sort of connected much in the business today, but he'll be on uh, this Saturday, and we're going to talk how he started. I mean, he was like, 12 years old, and then uh, uh, John Lennon took him under his wing. I mean, he's a lot of he has great stories, and he's a charming guy and bright as a whip. Yeah, I can't wait to hear it. I'm looking forward to it. Uh, cousin, I appreciate you staying up late with us or getting up early, depending on your perspective. I look forward to seeing you on the radio. It's always such a treat whenever we get to speak. Cousin Frank, a pleasure, and keep on doing what you're doing. And remember the secret, you and I have it. We love what we're doing.